Welcome to the Waterways World Podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of hire fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. With me for this episode are Kate Safin and Heather Wasty from the Alarum Production Company. Founded in 2016, Alarum Productions celebrates the real-life stories of women on the waterways through public performances, publications and podcasts. One of their more recent projects, I Dig Canals, involved recording the stories of women involved in campaigns to save and restore canals in the black country in the 1960s and 70s, as well as producing a book, a podcast series and a short film on the topic. Kate and Heather are currently devising a live show based on the material, which they intend to perform at canal-side venues next year, when touring the country by boat. So, we had a lot to discuss. Let's take a listen. So what are you up to at the moment? We've been rehearsing all day. Well, not exactly rehearsing. We've been developing and devising. Devising? Is this for a new live show? Yes. It's based on the uh, project we did, I Did Canals, Oral Histories, with where we collected and gathered the stories of 19 women and quite a few others in, in um, at different events. Their stories of being part of the the saving and the restoring of the canals in the black country. So this is a development from your I Dig Canals uh, project? It is, yes. Uh, we got uh, we were lucky enough to get National Lottery Heritage Fund um, support. Um, it's quite a, a nice grant to interview these women. So we've got all their memories. We've got hours and hours of memories. Mm. And we always said we wanted to turn them into a show. And we've recently got Arts Council funding to do just that. Wow. So all the recordings will be available from the Waterways National Archive. Uh, the plan was to hand them over last Easter 2020 as part of their um, you know, their Easter festival. But, um, of course, that didn't happen. <clears throat> so we're hoping we'll be able to do that soon. So when that's done, any researcher or interested person will be able to, to listen to all of them. That's brilliant. And we've also done a series of podcasts based on them. So this material has gone quite a long way. Yeah, we, we produced a book um, as, as well as... Oh, we did 17 podcasts altogether. And we produced a book. Uh, and this show, um, it's actually something new for us because we've been working together since 2016. And we've always done double bills. So one of us will do one half and the other do the other half. Um, and we, for quite a while, have wanted to create a show together. And that needs quite a lot of time and effort. And so that's what the, the funding's enabled us to do, to actually sit down in a room together um, and write it jointly. And, of course, we work differently. So Kate tends to work in... Um, in sort of monologue and she writes scripts whereas I'm more of a poet and singer-songwriter mm. so we're now planning to dovetail those two elements 
um, in, into one show which tells, uh, aims and hopefully will succeed in telling the stories of lots of wonderful women. And were these women boaters or involved in canal side industry? No, not at all. They're the ones who were part of the, the post-war campaigning. Ah, I see. The canals had this last renaissance during the Second World War mm. when they were really valued. And that's where we told the stories of the wartime trainees, the idle women. Yeah. But at the end of the war, they, they were really creaking and struggling. Very little maintenance. Traffic and cargo was, was moving to the roads and the rail. And it all started with Tom Rolt's book, Narrowboat. His meeting with Robert Aikman and this idea of a canal preservation society. And out of that grew lots of, initially the Inland Water Association, but then gradually groups all over the country started campaigning for particular waterways. And one was the Staffs and Worcester. And one of the families involved in that was Heather's family. Oh, right. So that's, these were women who, uh, some joined independently, some were part of families, it was quite a good place for meeting, um, meeting up, meeting up, and young love. Quite, a, quite a lot of marriages blossomed over the mud in the working parties, didn't they? <laughs> and quite a lot, a lot of marriages did the, did the opposite. There was a lot of tension because the women didn't always want to be there. <laughs> really, right? <laughs> yeah, but with my mother, it was a, a mixture of um, really enjoying herself and. Um, at the end of the season, thinking, oh, thank goodness, <laughs> I, can, I can stay away from the boat for a few months. So they weren't people who were living or working on boats in, in that traditional sense. No, right, okay. But they yeah. were spending their weekends, their holidays, uh, on protest cruises, working parties, and an awful lot of the rest of their time at fundraisers, committee meetings, writing letters, campaigning, uh, creating you know, exhibitions. Putting on rallies, boat rallies. Yeah, so they had lots of fun too. And one of the things that Heather's mother did was organise a week of trips, taking a group of councillors, local councillors and dignitaries, out on a series of evenings, so a different group each evening. They all got fed a nice meal, taken on the canal to show the potential of the canal as a resource for the whole area. I think that particular cruise, actually, Mum did organise um, trips out with councillors where there was a meal. I'm not sure there was for the one that Kate's talking about. It was basically a nine-day or nine days of trips with councillors. So she'd got to plan where the trip started from, where it finished, which councillors were relevant to that area, get them to the boat, get them from the boat. Uh, it was a real undertaking, and she actually won an award for that, which is rather nice. She was awarded a book. Oh, wow, okay. book, yeah. Right. Do you think that the role of women in post-war canal campaigns has been overlooked? I think a lot of them got dragged into it by the men. Mm. Um, it was something that, that couples did together. It was, you know, it's, it's an unusual thing, really, in that, Couples and families. I mean, that's how I I got into it. Um, in fact, it started by myself and my brother. We were ill all the time. I'd always got colds, and my brother, who's younger than me, um, actually was quite seriously ill. And so 
Mom asked the doctor what she can do about it. And he said, oh, they need more fresh air and exercise. So my dad bought a boat, bought a little cruiser. Oh, wow. and, and they never looked back, really. They they got hooked into the Staffs and Worcester Canal Society quite early on. And before they knew it, they were on protest cruises. They were members of the society. Um, they, yeah, they were helping, yeah, writing brochures for rallies. Getting involved in writing the uh, broadsheet, which is the Staffs and Worcester Canal Society newsletter. Um, yeah, it, it just became a way of life and every weekend and every holiday, that's what we were doing. What was probably a little bit different about it, because we're talking about the 60s and 70s, is that this was something that, that couples and families did together. Mm. There were other activities, but at that time I think there was often quite a divide between social activities for women and social activities for men. So I think there was that. And the women, when they were telling us the stories of things like working parties, said, no, we, we were just, well, you often couldn't tell the difference. Everybody was in Wellingtons and, and waterproofs and, um, you know, everybody just did the same jobs. There was a bit of division around some of the, the more campaigning side and, and committees and things in that the first woman to be a chair person of the Staffs and Worcester Society wasn't that, that didn't come until the 80s until then it was all the men and the women were tending to take the secretarial jobs and the catering and the social yeah. um, and one woman did say to us that because like now people tended to take on the jobs that they were already had some skills in so the minutes did tend to get typed by women because they were the ones who probably had learned to type but on the whole, they didn't feel they were discriminated against. Good. Now, I know that we have a very active and achieving restoration movement in this country. But in speaking to Braunston Marina's Tim Coughlin last year, he suggested that the really big campaigns don't exist anymore. Do you feel that's the case? I think the feeling was that it... I mean, from my perspective, it was um, a small-ish group who used to meet up regularly at the rallies and be off doing their bits and pieces. And and at the same time, uh, the Waterway Recovery Group, they used to, uh, they, I mean, they descended on, on Stourbridge when the Stourbridge locks uh, were being restored. Um, and that was quite central to it all. So it, I, I think probably because so much was achieved in the 60s and 70s, um, at the time when, when Barbara Castle's Transport Act came into force, uh, which meant that they could actually do these things and have, have permission to do these things. But basically, I think it was that which was a turning point. And yeah. so since then, there, there have been a lot of things happening, but maybe that, uh, that time has got more significance to it. Now there are lots of groups working in various areas but because it's happened before historically it's perhaps got I don't know less um there isn't quite, yeah and I think perhaps there isn't quite that sense of imminent catastrophic loss mm. there was then yeah um, uh, you know there's a number of of canals that are working on restoration so there's the Montgomery there's the Buckingham there's moves to even put a new Link through to Milton Keynes. There's 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 a lot going on, and um, the link from the Thames, the, the Cotswold. So there's still a there is still a lot going on. Perhaps it's because as we look back, we we can see it more as a whole. Mm, no, that makes sense. 
You mentioned earlier the founders of the Inland Waterways Association, Robert Aikman and Tom Rolt. I listened to your podcast about their respective wives, Ray Aikman and Angela Rolt, and I didn't realise that they made quite such a contribution to the formation of the IWA. They did, yes. I think one of the things I found fascinating to look at the letters, because Robert Aikman kept every scrap of paper that came through his front door, um, we have Angela, a lot of Angela's letters. Unfortunately, we don't have rays going in back. Uh, but they're, they're wonderful. They're, they're on Blue Basil and Bond, and they're just, they're, they're no, just dashed off about how she'll bring some eggs or how excited she was to have a banana. But <laughs> yeah, those, those two did a huge amount. Angela did a lot of photography, a lot of the work in setting up the exhibition they held in, in, at Heels in 1947, I think. That was an uh, exhibition of canal. Canal wear uh, and, and uh, yes, and um, there's a photograph of her setting up, so there's water cans and decorated pieces and, and information about the canals. And Ray was a stalwart uh, typist and secretary to Robert Aitman. So probably the bulk of the early letters and, and work was, was Ray typing. And then, of course, Jane, Elizabeth Jane Howard, the novelist, came along and she was the first paid secretary to the IWA. Indeed. So those three women um, were a really, really important part of those early days. Yeah. We haven't included, we can't, well, we could. We, we haven't included them in the, the show that we're doing at the moment. We're focusing around the 60s and 70s. We have, part of our, our challenge is that we have so many incredibly wonderful stories. Yeah. That are moving and funny, and um, I just show how much hard work we could probably produce a five hour show, but we <laughs> will we'll spare the audience that one. <laughs> could you give us any example? There's a story um, of Jean Dobbs. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me quoting her name. One of the first times they went out on their boat, she and her husband Roy, they took his mother. And they were going along, and the engine kept cutting out. And they couldn't work out what was happening, until eventually they realised that every time his mother stood up, the engine cut out. Right. Because she was sitting on the fuel pipe. <laughs> oh my, <God>. <laughs> I think my, my favourite one is one from Jenny Hatton, which is about the early days of meeting um, her husband, Graham. Um, and the first trip out, he had an, an interesting boat. They called it the Shed. The, at, at that time, we're not talking about glossy narrowboats. No. Most people were cruising in GRP cruises. It was a, yes, it's a leisure activity. Uh, and all sorts of interesting cobbled together things. And Graham's Shed was, in effect, a bit, probably a bit like one of the working flats we see now with a shed and an outboard. And the thing that protects an outboard is the shear pin. Jenny described it being a bit like a fuse. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if something gets tangled around the prop, the shear pin will break. And so every boat at that time was carrying spare shear pins, and Graham was very organised. He was carrying shear, spare shear pins. What he hadn't taken that day, which was a particularly cold, snowy day in March uh, on the BCN, was spare gear oil. So in order to reprime the engine, he needed fairly clean gear oil. 
So Jenny found herself straining gear oil through her tights. <laughs> Brilliant. On the towpath in Edgbaston wow. in a blizzard in March. And I came back for more, she said. <laughs> she told the story really well. I think it's probably in one of our podcasts. It's bound to be. Yeah, yeah. she told me just relish. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> so the, the challenge for you guys is this great source material is then making that into a kind of a, a, a live show. That's right. And it, it's also got to have a, an overarching story to it so that it's not a hodgepodge of, of little stories. So we've had to find a, a longer story that can be the backbone of it mm. and then find ways of bringing in the other stories in such a way that does them credit um, and shows them off um, without kind of just going off at a tangent that doesn't mean anything. Uh, yeah, I understand. Um, it's also very hard because unlike the work we did with the trainees, those, those women have, are gone. We have their accounts that we used in, in writing, and I created a fictional character to carry some of that. Heather tells stories through the poems, often based on some their writings, but here we've got these wonderfully vivid recordings and we've got women's voices. And that's been a real challenge to think about how we did tell these stories in a way that um, that works, that doesn't, because, because they tell them so well, mm. but we don't want to take them and not tell them as well. Mm. I think generally one, one thing we'd like audiences to do is when they've been to see the show, then think, oh, I want to actually hear the original stories as told by the women, um, because that will add to the, to the enjoyment. Because yeah. you know, we, we're doing things like, we're, we're doing some amalgamating. So everything in the show, as in our previous ones, has happened to somebody, but not necessarily all in exactly the same place at exactly the same time. So I think, and, and we're taking in places we're using little little snippets from different places. So as Zeta says, to then go back and listen and hear that deeper, longer story, we hope uh, something people would like to do. Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Live, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. the female volunteers of World War Two, and you had a show that was dedicated to that period and those characters, didn't you? That was called Idle Women of the Wartime Waterways, and that's the show that Kate and I started with when we first got together. Oh right, so that was your first performance. It was, mm. yes. It started because I had written, I've actually, I was commissioned by Canal and River Trust to write 
a, a long poem. It lasted about six minutes and they wanted me to record it. And they sent me some audio from their archive and I discovered the story of the Idle Women. It was um, Emma Smith's recording that really attracted my attention. Oh, there's a recording of Emma Smith, is there? There is. Oh. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a long recording by her and there's also another one by Nancy Ridgway. Uh, she was Nancy Smith. Uh, during the war, before she was married, and she worked on the Leeds and Liverpool Canal on the uh, what we subsequently learned on that are called Liverpool short boats. We we toured the show up there to tell her story as well as um, the so-called idle women. Anyway, I heard these women and I wrote the piece around their stories, and also found out about Daphne March, who's idea it was that women could work on the boats. Uh, she started attracting um, advertising for crew in 1941 in Worcester. And I got those three women's stories and kind of put them together into this poem and used some of the extracts from the audio to create the recording. And I was doing that. And Kate will now tell you what she was doing. I had just finished um, a master's in creative writing at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and was thinking about what to do and, and how to use all these wonderful... I, was, I had already been writing and performing, but I was, I was in London for this and thinking about what to do. And so I was having ideas about sort of travelling and boating and stories and things and looked at the website, the Ellesmere Port website, because I promised... For years to visit a friend in Chester by boat, so I thought well, perhaps this is the moment. And came across Heather's work, and uh, we actually connected via Twitter. And and the, the synchronicity was interesting because firstly, she told me about Idle Women and Judies and gave me a link to listen to. And I said, Ah, oh, I've written a play about the Trumpets called Isabel's War, which I'd written in two thousand and nine, and had performed a various fringes and around the, the system and uh, she said well I'd like to read that so I emailed it off thinking well I hope she likes it because if she does we could put them together under a double bill mm. and about a week later I had an email I said I really like this we could put them together under <laughs> a double bill so then we booked a phone call and uh, we started planning we decided we'd do an initial tour and the other wonderful bit of synchronicity was that I had this idea that I would visit uh, my very good friend tie up in, in Chester, which meant going out the Staffs in Worcester, which yeah. coincidentally is exactly where Heather lives. Oh, wow. And so it just seemed, this all seemed a bit meant really. So we started to put together an initial uh, tour of 11 venues. By the time we met in actual person, we had most of the tour booked and the poster designed. And I think we'd even, I think we'd even booked the London preview. We'd, we were we'd a bit... Fortunately, we got on, so it was fine. <laughs> well, in February, the preview March. is in April. March, we actually met. Okay, no, we met on the, the first Twitter time. in the February. Yeah, March 2017? 2016. 2016. It was five years. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so the, the first performance was in London, that's the preview in April, and then we did the first tour starting June. Uh, June. Yeah. And our first performance was due to be at the campus in Grimley on the River Severn. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, the stage was underwater, so we didn't manage to do our first show of the tour. So the first show of the tour ended up being at Starport. Just to be clear, these were all waterside venues. Yes, 
Oh, the Camp Hill uh, at some watery venues. <laughs> <laughs> and also the, the other bit about that particular day was that <clears throat> I had got to Worcester and the plan was that a friend was coming to help me onto the River Seven. We would moor up at Camp Hill, do the show, carry on to Starport the next day. Uh, it was becoming clear that wasn't going to be practical because the water level was going up and up and up and the Lockleaf Diggilis kept saying, go, go, go now. And so we decided that I would, with my friend's help, would go to Starport, Heather would pick me up and we'd go back to the Camp Hill. But as we reached the Camp Hill, with everything underwater... Camp, Camp House. Camp House, sorry. Um, I've spent too much time in Birmingham lately. Camp House. Uh, Heather rang me and said they've cancelled because the stage is flooded. Oh, dear. So, um, yeah, so our first one was... Um, actually, I think it might have been Ashford Marina. Oh, it was. That's where it was. first one was Ashford Marina. So these were waterside venues and you were travelling by boat? Yeah. At that stage, Kate was travelling on her boat and I would join, because it was near to where I lived... I just yeah. joined my car, and then as we got further away, got further north. Then um, actually, I don't think I stayed on Kate's boat at all in that first tour. But then, from from then on, we tried to do as many of the tours as we could by boat, um, mm. and then I'd stay. And in fact, it wasn't soon, it wasn't long before in 2017 we got an Arts Council grant to do a 50 show tour over 15 weeks. Um, and we had the bright but obvious idea of retracing the journey that the trainees would take from London up to Birmingham, across to Coventry, and back to London. Right. It would take three weeks to do that. And then once they'd done that trip twice, they were no longer trainees, although that is the name that stuck. <laughs> yeah, but we don't call anything but trainees. So what they spent three weeks doing, we spent three months doing. And was this with a pair of working boats? No, it was with one working boat. With just one working uh, boat. A Pellers Morton Clayton boat. And the lovely thing about that, it was, it was owned by a woman, Alex Bennett. Right. Who was very, very generous in letting us use it. She couldn't be with us all of the time, so we had a, a second steerer, uh, another Heather. And... Uh, very, very sadly, uh, Alex died the following spring oh, in a, in a, on another boat. And on our YouTube channel, there is, um, for anybody who ever knew her, she was such a vibrant, lively person. But we've got, a, we've got a very lovely film, a tribute to her. So the boat was called Tench, and that was an, that's an ex-working boat, still with a large cargo-carrying area and a really small cabin. It is. It, it is a historic working boat. It's a Fellows Morton and Clayton. If, uh, if we're going to be technical, it's a little smaller and slimmer than the Grand Union boats that the women mostly worked on. Right. Uh, although a working boat looked very much like any other working boat with a cabin, cargo area, uh, it's either a butty, so it is unpowered with a, a, a big... Uh, Elm tiller and rudder, or it has a motor and a, a, the, the counter of a motor and a propeller. Um, in fact, there are subtle differences 
and some are just that little bit bigger. So one of the stories of the the women working the boats was actually heading onto the Oxford Canal and getting stuck in the logs. Yeah. So they were just it didn't seem a bit too fat. Yes. And were you actually living in the cabin of Tench? No, we had my boat. Oh, okay. uh, we had yeah. quite a number of, of volunteer trainees who came along. Mm. Uh, I think the most crowded occasion was the night we managed to have six people sleeping on my boat, <laughs> which included our tour manager, Zoe, having the kitchen. Um, but, yeah, so we had people who came along and helped and mostly were fed and watered from, from my boat. Did it give you an insight into what life was like for those wartime trainees? It, yes, it did actually doing the route um, and, and being with the working boat. I mean, I, I'm i not a great one for, for steering, but I did steer Tench. Um, Tench was actually the same kind of boat as Laurel, the boat that we had when I was um, young. Mm. Um, so it's, it's so different from from steering a, a modern boat. Uh, so actually steering it, going through all the locks, taking the journey into Birmingham, um, going along what they called the bottom road. Uh, we, they called it the bottom road because it was, that's the, the Birmingham Faisley Canal. Yeah. One out of Birmingham going towards Coventry. Um, and experiencing uh, an to some extent, imagining, although it, it's it's not the most attractive part when you, as you're coming out of Birmingham, um, but they didn't like it because it was so dirty because of all the factories. So the, the towpaths got filthy and the ropes dragged on the towpath and they got filthy, so everybody got filthy. Um, and it was single locks. Yes. All the way up from London, they'd been bringing a pair, two boats together through the wide locks. Once they'd offloaded on the outskirts of Birmingham around Tiresley and they were going onto the bottom road, they had to single out. So every lock had to be worked twice. Oh, gosh. Right. So these ropes that were trailing into this filthy, oily, gritty stuff on the towpath, and it's still quite oily around Garrison, uh, had to be pulled, put over their shoulders to, be, to bow haul. And they would end up, there's, in their writings about it, they talk about ending up with this sort of, grinding its way through their clothes and leaving a mark across their back. <laughs> we didn't have to do it. No. It wasn't quite as hard. And, of course, the Bowdoin families were doing it as well, and they too hated it. And eventually, um, I think it was actually one of the few occasions when the boaters either almost or did strike. They did strike, yeah. And, and it was 1944. And they, they were allowed yeah. to return via... Uh, the Hatton flight and and down the Grand Union and go to Coventry that way, right. which was probably just as quick actually. Just um, as quick and a, and, yeah. a, and a fair bit more pleasant. Particularly if I was steering Tench, found myself looking around and thinking, this view is the same as the one they saw, yeah. or going under the M25. This view is very different from the one they saw, <laughs> yeah. and and that really made me think of. About the the now and then. Yes, our challenges were quite different in many ways from the, the challenges that the trainees had because we were putting on shows 
and and thinking of the logistics from a a different perspective. And how did that pan out? Really well. We had a a very talented tour manager, Zoe Hunt. Another Um, bow woman. Another (laughs) bow woman, yes, who... um, he got in touch with uh, Crown River Trust to make sure that we'd got moorings and that, that worked out quite well because we had to make sure we had a mooring next to the venue. And not just a mooring, but we got two boats. So we had to, um, yeah, make sure we could get to the venue from, from the canal. Mm. And at one point we did split the boats because it was the Braunston Historic Boat Festival and Tench was going there. So Morning Mist went one way and Broadstone went the other way. And uh, we did have, uh, we had a real problem actually because um, Heather and I, the other Heather, Heather Boyce, had got to get Tench back to join Morning Mist. And so Kate took us in her... It was a couple of her... long days. It was a couple of long days. <laughs> well, no, you, we... you took us in, in your car to, to um, Tench. We arrived, we got out and then you said cheerio and you went back to... Well, I forget where um, where you were. Quite yes. a, quite more quite a way away, and we got to tension and realised we hadn't got the key and couldn't get in. Oh no! <laughs> and it wasn't more secreted anywhere, so then we had to phone Kate and say, um, "Can you come back?" <laughs> I seem to remember of that week doing a lot of driving up and down the M sixty nine. So I took them back to the boat, and then then I had to work out which bridge to pick them up from, and then drop them back the next day. And, yeah, it was a couple of quite long days. But it, it worked in the end. We performed in some great spaces. We lots of pub gardens. It was the following year, I think, that we did. The, we, we performed at a brewery. We performed at Alestones in Tardybeg, where the stage area was little more than a half. It was the half. <laughs> that, that's what it was. It was a half. Fortunately, it was the stove. <clears throat> But it was the half. Then the other brewery, we were in the midst of all the big tanks that were bubbling away and brewing. Um, that was the back of the gunmaker's arms in Birmingham. Yeah, we don't have a big set. Kate just has a, a tea chest. Um, and I mostly travel with my squeeze box, only that. And so we are quite adaptable. Um, so there's the space, we can stretch it in, in the minds of the audience, depending on how big a space we've got. I see. Only once, I think, have we actually performed on a boat, and that was the Leeds and Liverpool Society's uh, Liverpool short boat. That was in the heat wave of 2018. That was a bit of a warm afternoon. That's in it. It's a lovely boat, but it was so... I think that's the hottest I've been. And I wear a very thick jumper in Isabel's Wall. <laughs> There's a bit of it which is actually in winter, so I have to convince you that I am shivering. Right. Um, whilst white red in the face and melting. <laughs> I'm just wondering, with the performances often being outdoors, has the weather been a problem in other ways? Weather has been an issue, yes. Uh, we've had a couple of occasions where Kate has managed to do her half um, of the Eyed Women show, which comes first, and then it's rained in the interval, and then we've had to suddenly find a way of being indoors. For my half, uh, probably my favourite was in Foundry Wood. In Leamington, very close to where we are now, actually. We've, we're, um, we've been uh, working, we're at Saltersford Trust in Warwick. 
And they've been very open and generous, and um, we're using their meeting room, Seed Room, at a, at a very uh, at a reduced price. And we've been re- rehearsing and working here. And the it's a community wood in Leamington. And so it's mostly open air, but it has a sort of shelter. Think sort of like a big bus shelter. And we have a wonderful picture of we crammed everyone in there. Oh, it was absolutely squashed in. And luckily, my my performances don't need to move very far because I'm do, delivering poetry and songs. I tend to stand quite still. Um, and we got a couple of uh, cheap uh, torches, which we used as uplighters. <laughs> so there's this wonderful ghostly photograph of me performing and all these people crammed. It's just such a wonderful atmosphere. I'm it's, sure. it's wonderful the audiences, you know, that they, they mock in and if it's raining, they put their umbrellas up. And, yeah. You know. well, one of my favourites was Cavalcade at the very start of the 2017 tour. And it was all arranged for us to perform in the beer tent, I think at six. And the plan was that there was a break in the having the bar open between the, the public open bit and the boaters only bit in the evening. But it turned out that actually they, they got a slightly different arrangement that year and they contracted the bar anyway. The bar was just going to be running all the way through. And that wasn't going to work very well for this quite intimate storytelling show that I do and then other songs and poems. But in the morning, we had done some other work in a, another marquee over in Rembrandt Gardens, just mm. under the Westway flyover. And so I thought, if there's nobody there, so we sent somebody to have a quick look. And they came back and said, no, it's fine, tenty. So it's right, everybody, get a chair, follow us. And off we went, like the Piper of Hamlin, off under the Westway, everybody bringing their chair. Another wonderful boater, uh, Christine Kemp, said, well, you might need a bit of help. So she produced a microphone and a portable battery-run amplifier. So we had that. Uh, now, that works really well for Heather because she's standing fairly still. It doesn't work very well for me. I'm racing all over the stage. Mm. Alex Bennett from, from Tench acted as a boom operator. Now, at this point, she hadn't seen the show. So mm. she followed me round the stage, holding the microphone up like a boom, so that everybody who was crammed into the tent or was outside could hear it. And if... If we'd done that on purpose, everybody would have thought we were rather unprofessional. But because we literally managed to rebuild a show from a situation where it was going to be difficult to perform, the audience was just absolutely behind it, weren't they? Mm. They were in there cheering us. They were determined it was going to go well. Is there an interactive element to your shows? Uh, yes. In fact, it tends to stem from, from what I do. Um, I'm, I'm known for my earworms, the songs that I write become earworms and people um they they joke when, when they see me oh I'd, I'd only just forgotten about that song and now it's stuck back in my head again they, right. they tease me um so there's there's normally at least one song that people yeah. can tune in on and uh you know other ways of of getting getting the audience to kind of join in with you i i really like to do that and audiences enjoy it too you mentioned the um the, the, your squeeze box, Heather, which is a, a kind of a, a traditional boater's instrument, isn't it? One would assume. Yes, I think um, a lot of boaters did, did have accordions um, because they're small and portable. Mm. 
I know that Daphne March had one, a woman who features in our Idle Women's Stories. Is your music based on traditional folk songs of the cut? No, it isn't. In fact, I did do some research. I was trying to find songs that had been written, you know, waterway songs that had been written about women. And other than um, sort of derogatory ones um, and love songs, there weren't any at all. So um, I set about writing some. So they're, they're sort of folky type style, quite jaunty and the sort that will have a, a catchy chorus. Mm. The thing about folk music and, and the cut is it, it's a relatively modern thing. The, if you look at a lot of uh, folk music, it grows out of the activity. So, you know, we have sea shanties, which were about singing in times that you could pull the ropes. Mm. There were the, the songs from the cotton fields and slavery and um, oppression. Mm. But the boaters, they were mostly working as families and on their own. And they tended, I think, to play whatever was the music of the day. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't, I mean, I know a little bit about folk music. I mean, I'm interested in it. But I can't easily put my hand on a song that is about... Uh, the songs I, well, I think all I've heard have been uh, songs that are, are about the canal and the working boats. And they're relatively modern. Yes, that's what I'm well, because I'm sure somebody will come rushing in and tell me I'm completely wrong, show me all sorts of things that have been written. But that's the that's the sense I've had of it since in, in my twenty years of voting. Slight change of subject now, but this new show, does it have a working title? It's got an actual title, yes, it is called it is called I Dig Canals. Ah, I see. Because you've got a book called I Dig Canals and um, podcast as well. There's there's a book, there's a series of podcasts mm-hmm. which have I Dig Canals in the title and then, and then a, a subtitle. Yeah. The I Dig Canals comes from, it was a 70s slogan in the days when, you know, I Dig Something meant it was cool and mm. I was into it. And so that's, that's where we, we took the title from. And the logo actually depicts a woman with a spade, doesn't it? Yes, that was actually taken from a photograph of a young woman um, digging under a culvert when they restored the Droitwich Canal. I see. Um, We liked it because, I don't know, the nature of the way she was standing. She was looking down, so she's looking quite modest, but she clearly was quite into it. She got her gloves and her boots and her hat um, and so she be, she became our pinup girl for the, the research part of the project. Um, we're not actually using that image for the show. We've we've got a new image now, which we think is very powerful. A young woman working hard. And are you going to tour this show again? It will do. Yes. I mean, we haven't performed live since February last year, but okay. we are due to perform live again very soon. And then uh, once we've premiered the new show we're going to do take it on a little tour in the black country right um and yeah, yeah. so we're our first time back on stage will be the uh, iwa festival in worcester at the august bank holiday and um, we will uh we'll give a few sneak peeks there'll, there'll be some little glimpses i think um <laughs> then uh yeah so we're looking at a uh 
uh, which we're currently booking at the moment, but some venues around the, the Black Country as a starting point. And then, and then, and the other thing at the moment is we're still thinking very much around COVID restrictions. So we're looking at a show that's now along with no interval. Right. So over the winter, we're depending on how things pan out, we're quite likely to look at extending it so it becomes a, a longer one with an interval, a proper evening out. Yes, indeed. And do you know when the performances will take place next year? Well, spring. So somewhere like that. Yeah, summer we'll we'll be getting going, but uh, we'll be we'll be sharing that widely. We yes, have sharing it widely, and we'll carry details in Waterways World magazine as we always do of your excellent events because they're also very well received. It seems to me. Thank you. We've also got two excellent production interns over this summer. One of whom is working hard to get us very well noticed on social media, isn't she? She is. Yeah. Well, of course, that's a very valuable role these days. Kate and Heather, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating talking to you. Oh, thank you. And uh, best of luck with the performances. Yeah. Thanks we'll very much. Soon. Yes, thank, thank you very much. For 45 years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.